My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. Actual data is hard to come by, but the Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones, but all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Nikki Zinger. On March 10th, 1991, Nikki's mother, Linda Holly, was found dead in her Magnolia, Arkansas home. The crime was brutal. She was stabbed, beaten, and left for dead. A month went by with no arrests. And then, out of the blue, 28-year-old Nikki and her boyfriend, Daniel Risher, were arrested and convicted for her mother's murder. However, decades later, new DNA evidence busts holes in the prosecution's theory. And it turns out that a similar murder happened five days after Linda's that could point to the real killer. So why are Nikki and Daniel still in prison? And who did kill Linda Holly? We'll get to that after this. Nikki Zinger and Daniel Risher's case is another one that came to me from Proclaim Justice. And if you remember, Proclaim Justice was in the West Memphis 3 2.0 DeMarco Wilson episode. It took Nikki and I a while to connect on the phone, so we wrote letters back and forth for a few weeks. And when we finally got to talk on the phone, she and I were super excited. It felt like we'd really gotten to know each other through our letters. Hello? Hi, Nikki. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm excited, too. I saw a call coming in from Arkansas, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this has to be Nikki. Something about Nikki just drew me in. She's bubbly, warm, and especially curious about the world. She loves asking me questions. I've only been to one city in my whole life, and that's been like Houston and New Orleans is up down there, you're saying, but I've never been anywhere like that. And that was just like, I can imagine all the things you can do up there. And then when I met you, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to ask this woman all the kind of things that you can do, you know, go to plays and go shopping and, and just go to the museums. Oh my God, I was just... I'd be like a little kid. I sound like a little kid now, don't I? And this made me instantly want to know her and find out how she is this lovely, even after what she's endured. At the time of her mother's murder, all Nikki had was her mother. Her life growing up was incredibly difficult, and she didn't have many friends or family, which we'll get to in a minute. And so because of that, she was extremely close with her mother, Linda. She considered Linda really her only friend. You know, she she had her mom. Her mom was her whole world. 
and Daniel was her whole world. And in the span of a month, a murderer took her mother away, and then the state took her love away. They were no longer allowed to be with one another or support one another ever again. And so that is even more of a crime. This is Jason Baldwin, co-founder of Proclaim Justice and one of the infamous West Memphis Three. He began working on Nikki's case with his organization, Proclaim Justice, in 2017. And, you know, she, she's been alone in that jail, in that prison. She doesn't have her mom anymore to come visit her. And so she doesn't have the same experiences that anyone else might have. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been exponentially difficult for her. Daniel's mom knows Nikki and Daniel are innocent, and she has taken it on herself to take care of them both, even to the point to where she gave everything to where the only thing she had to eat was bread and water for years because she gave everything she had to the defense of Daniel and Nikki and to their lives so they could have something in captivity. And that is heartbreaking all around. Nikki Zinger was born in Chicago, Illinois, and came to Magnolia, Arkansas, when she was just one. So, Nikki, what was Magnolia like? Was it a small place? Uh, well, back then it was smaller than it is now. Yeah, there's not that much to do. It's got some arcades in it, and a movie house, a skating rink, um, and a food place. Nikki was raised by her single mother, Linda Holly. Oh, uh, well... My mom and my dad got divorced when I was like a year, I think, because he was so abusive. He was an alcoholic and did drugs when I was little. He was pushing me in a swing because we lived in the country, and he was drunk, and he pushed too hard, and I fell out of the, out of the swing and got a splinter in the bottom of my foot. And I was crying, and my mom ran out the door, and she said, if you can't come see your child sober, don't come back at all, and he never did. She'd never, ever come back. And Nikki grew up not knowing him at all. It hurt my feelings growing up because, you know, people would have a parent day at school and they'd ask me where my father was. I didn't know. My mom didn't tell me for years because she thought I was too young. So I would tell different things. Well, he's on a business trip and he's on this. Well, then the school got thinking I was crazy mm. because they knew I was lying. I didn't know any better, though. So... It was just me and my mom all these years. They lived in a double-wide trailer, one side Nikki's and one side her mom's. And Nikki and her mom had a special relationship. Linda was Nikki's caretaker, of course. That's what moms do. But Nikki required a bit extra because she was born with a club foot. And it was severe enough that when she was a kid, she couldn't walk. And she had to wear leg braces on and off. So I had to have all the surgeries and then... I went to school every other year, and I was homeschooled every other year, so I never really had any friends in school because if you were my friend in the third grade, you weren't my friend in the fifth grade because you found new little friends. I was in the hospital for a year. Nikki would have surgeries almost every year, she says, and so she was in and out of school and homeschool. Nikki says she would eventually drop out in eighth grade, so her mom was really her only friend. But Linda had to work a ton to support the two of them on her own. And my mom would, like, be working 11 to 7, be wore out. She was a nurse. She uh, ran the health department 
she was a nurse. And she could have been a doctor, you know what I'm saying, if it hadn't been for me because of all the things that I was going through, my leg and stuff. But she was smart enough to be a doctor. After years of taking care of Nikki, the roles kind of flipped. Linda got breast cancer, then lymph node cancer. Then they found tumors in her head and liver. And Nikki was suddenly thrust into the role of caretaker. Having cancer and having to work and having to learn to re-eat the things that she didn't like. Like steamed vegetables. She hated steamed vegetables at first, but then we ate them together and it was better. You know what I'm saying? Because she was sick. And I had to take care of my mom when she was sick. And it, that was okay because that was not just my mom by this time. It was my friends also. And Nikki started to see her mom in a different light. I never thought about my parents, my mom being a human or a woman, rather. Just a mom. Does that make sense? You know, moms are just supposed to be there. Moms are supposed to just be moms. You know, and as I learned... And I think that's what made her more be my friend, sort of, because, oh, my mom is more human than I thought. Nikki says even through the cancer, her mom worked. She had no choice. Nikki couldn't have a job because of her foot. She says she can't walk or stand for long periods of time because it starts to hurt. The Arkansas DOC prison description says that to this day, Nikki's right leg is noticeably smaller than her left. I asked Nikki how she went about meeting people, not being in school, and not being able to work. I mean, you know, when you live in the country, even though you're not a country girl, when you live in the country, <laughs> you just just know people. I mean, you get it, you know, people, you know, they'll sometimes do your yard or do your lawn, and then they do this, and you do that, and you and you meet this one, and then, oh, well, you meet my girlfriend, or you meet my wife, and you meet some people like that. You know, word of mouth thing. Through that, she met her ex-husband. Nikki felt pressure from her mom being in her mid-20s and not being married or having a family. My mom was saying, you know, you're getting older, and you know, I don't have any grandkids. And, you know, I said, well, look, Mom, now you don't have to be married to have kids. You don't have to be. Well, you know, you don't, but it just look, look, looks a little better when you have a, da- a daddy. So, and I don't know what happened. And I messed around, and, and I don't know, bam, they're just, I got married. And then almost right off the bat, it was not good. So... I got it annulled. I got married in October and got it mold and got it annulled in December. And it was horrible. He was an alcoholic. He was mean and he didn't want to work and he just wanted to lay up in my mom's house and I told him, We can't do all that you know, and then other things uh happened and then I said, Well, we just got you just got to go. You just, you just really got to go. Just a few months after Nikki met Daniel Frischer. Daniel was recently out of the Navy, and he was different from her ex. She felt safe with him. She says he was fun and funny. But shortly after meeting Daniel, Nikki says she got in a bad car wreck and broke her neck. She was laid up recovering, and Daniel came by and offered to take care of Nikki when Linda went to work. How long were you guys dating for? I guess about a year. I guess really together. I mean, you know, you know, you know how you date you know how you go out and just hang out and uh, get to know each other or go to the park and swing or whatever. So it just took off from there. 
Nikki and Daniel were pretty much inseparable in that time. They both lived with their parents and would bounce back and forth between Daniel's parents' house and Linda's. They were even talking about getting married. This was the first person besides her mother Nikki felt really connected with. Did you like him right away? Yeah. Let's see. How I put this? It was like a tunnel thing. Does that make sense to you? I see you and you see me, but it's not awkward, but yet there's something there. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And I want to know more about what it is. You know what I'm saying? Daniel was a musician. And actually, from reading about this case, I feel like he and I would probably get along. The shirt he was wearing the day of the murder was an Iron Maiden shirt. This day, on March 8th, 1991, Nikki and Daniel drove to Shreveport, Louisiana, to fix one of Daniel's amps. Shreveport was the closest big city, about an hour and a half away. And during this trip, they went to the mall, they ate at Subway, and they visited a lake. And then they went back to Magnolia. Both Nikki and Daniel say it was around dusk. They rented some movies, made a quick stop at Walmart, and went home. On the way, they drove past Linda's home, but all her lights were off, so they figured she was sleeping. And that was it. It was a nice day together. Over the weekend, Nikki called her mom and left multiple messages, but Linda never called back. They hadn't heard from her since they last saw her Thursday night. Nikki and Daniel were teaching Linda to play Mario 3. So on Sunday, they decided to go check on her. And when they pulled up to the house, they could not have been prepared for what they found. When we pulled up that Sunday and the officers were in my front yard, they told me what had happened. Nikki's mom, Linda, was dead stabbed 12 times and bludgeoned in their home. The back door glass window was shattered and the house was ransacked. All I could do was scream at them and tell them that they were lying to me. And they had to um, grab me around my waist and hold me. Because, you know, that's just something that, you know, when you pull up in your yard, that's just something that somebody doesn't tell you. Mm -hmm. You know? That's just something that you don't hear every day. I just thought they were lying. You know what I'm saying? All I kept screaming, you're lying. And, all I, and I was crying, and, and I couldn't... Everything was gone. That panic that gets in your heart, and it makes your heart squeeze. And it's, it's like... It's like, you know... My heart was just squeezed in half. A month goes by and there were no arrests. In this small town, an unsolved murder like this does not look good. But then on March 14th, 1991, four days after Linda's body was discovered, a judge authorized a search warrant for Daniel's parents' home. A month later, Nikki and Daniel were arrested and went on trial January 13th, 1992. The prosecution's theory... Nikki wanted her mother's $90,000 life insurance policy and murdered her for it. Then her and Daniel staged the scene to look like a break-in. During a second search warrant of Daniel's parents' home on April 18th, the police found Daniel's camouflage hunting jacket. He was a hunter. They sprayed luminol on it and claimed that the luminol showed blood. Daniel says it was animal blood from hunting. The prosecution alleged it was Linda's blood. Along with the luminol testimony, the only other real significant evidence presented was Linda's life insurance policies. Officers Jim Whittington, Robert Gorham, Terry Bolton, and Johnny Hayes all said they did not see 
any life insurance papers when they searched the house. But when they executed the first warrant on Daniel's parents' house, they say they found a box filled with paperwork, including Linda's life insurance policy, allegedly proving that Nikki and Daniel murdered her for the money and took the paperwork with them when they left. Now, Linda was last seen alive around 4.30, 5 p.m. by her neighbor. The prosecution believes she was killed shortly after then, so sometime close to 5, based on a few things. Linda first listened to her messages when she came home and then called back people who left her messages. Also, her bladder was full and she was still in her scrubs. So they believe she listened to the messages, made some phone calls and was murdered in the 630 time frame, considering she had not yet gone to the bathroom or changed her clothes. In terms of the defense, they did present friends, family, and an alibi witness for Nikki and Daniel. Most importantly, the video store clerk who said she saw Nikki and Daniel around 6 or 7 at night. She thinks more like 6.30, the exact time the prosecution says Linda was killed. At the very least, leaving an incredibly tight window for the murder to occur. After a four-day trial, the jury came back hung, eight to four. They were directed to go back until they reached a verdict. Two hours later, they came back. On January 17, 1992, 28-year-old Nikki Zinger and 24-year-old Daniel Risher were convicted of first-degree murder of Nikki's mother, Linda Holly, and sentenced to life in prison without parole. I could not even begin to imagine what Nikki was going through. Your mom was your only family, and and now you're in prison for her murder. What does that feel like? Uh, You know, when, if you could be put in, if if you could be placed in a box, okay, with no lid, and have everything taken out of that box, and you're the only one in that box, and you're trying to get out of that box, it's lonely, isn't it? Or it would be lonely. And it's like, when all this happened, it was just like, they just threw me in this box and forgot that I was there for a long time. And it just felt so lonely and so sad. Yeah, and I can't imagine, I mean... You know, when you're supposed to be grieving for your mother, um, you're in court fighting for your your own life. Um, Have you been able to grieve for her? I don't even know how to grieve sometimes, I think. Is that crazy? Nikki tells me it's still hard to sleep. Sometimes she can't for days on end. What is it that particularly you're thinking about when you can't sleep? Like, what is it that keeps you up? How they did me. You have one minute left. It's like... I I, I don't know. Sometimes there's no words to explain things. I, I don't know. I wonder sometimes, will I ever be right? 
Nikki and Daniel spent over a decade in prison before their case gained any momentum. And during that time, Nikki says that while her case was stalled, she focused on getting her GED and took some programs like horticulture and stress management. Other than that, though, there really wasn't much for her to do. Because of her sentence, life without parole, she can't take college or vocational classes. I wanted to go to college. I mean, I've helped people off and on over the years with their uh, colleges. I can't take college, you know what I'm saying? But uh, I've helped different people in, in psychology, and I've done pretty well. And I've, I've surprised myself there. Nikki says she's helped other women as a tutor, and that brings her joy because through them, she can learn. I just thought, of, you know, I would like to further my education or um, something to learn. And some things I just, I'm like a sponge. I love to learn. You know what I'm saying? Because I've been locked up for so long, you know what I'm saying? And the new things are just so fascinating to me, you know? And I just want to soak it all up. But she still finds that even in prison, she's on her own. Do you have any friends inside? Mm. I guess I would say a, a few, not many. I'm not uh, real popular because I've all, I've never hung with whoever just to fit in because I don't fit in. She didn't fit in on the outside, she says, because she was homeschooled. And she doesn't fit in in prison, she says, because she doesn't want to join any kind of group that could get her in trouble while she's fighting to prove her innocence. So she mostly sticks to herself. And when you don't have anybody to talk to in here, it makes it really hard. Finally, in 2005, 13 years after their conviction, Craig Cooley from The Innocence Project took Daniel and Nikki's case. You might remember Craig from John Brookins' episode last week. Craig was able to get the courts to allow DNA testing on Daniel's hunting jacket, and it was, as Daniel said, not human blood. However, the Innocence Project couldn't take the case any further. So that's where Proclaim Justice picked up Nikki and Daniel's case. If the whole state's case is really built around this evidence, and that evidence turns out to be factually 100% provably untrue, then really the whole case falls apart. This is John Harden. You also probably remember him from DeMarco Wilson's case, West Memphis 32.0. He's an investigator and co-founder of Proclaim Justice with Jason Baldwin, who you heard from at the top of the episode. When John first took the case, the entire state's theory just didn't make sense to him off the bat. Um, Nikki loved her mother. They really loved each other and took care of each other. Um, and the idea that, that, you know, they would go in and, and murder her so violently, um, it just doesn't add up. As I mentioned, Linda was riddled with cancer. It just wouldn't make sense to risk killing her when she was possibly going to die soon anyway. So John and his investigators went back to the beginning, to the crime scene. Friday, March 8th, two days before the murder, Linda bumped into her neighbor and friend when they were getting their mail. Kara Lee Davis testified she saw Linda in her nursing scrubs, and it was around 4.35 p.m. They made plans to run errands the next day, Saturday. Linda says she'd give her a call, and they went their ways. By Sunday, Kara Lee had not heard from Linda. After lunch, she says she was about to lay down for a nap when she saw Linda's cats outside. 
Linda had five cats, and they were indoor cats. So this was not normal. She decided to go check on Linda. She went over to the house and walked around windows calling out for her. That's when she noticed the glass of the back door was broken. She decided to leave the scene and call Linda's best friend over for help, Jan Terrell. Around 5 p.m., the first officer showed up, and three of Linda's friends, including Kara Lee, Jan, and their other friend, Buddy Height, a former police officer, were already there waiting. When officers went in, they found Linda Holly in her scrubs, the same outfit she was seen in two days earlier by Kara Lee. There was blood everywhere, splattered on the ceiling and walls, and a blood trail that looked like Linda's body was dragged from the kitchen to the living room. So it says the crime scene was not secured. Is that why you say? This, the, not only was it not secured, this is one of the biggest disasters of a crime scene that I've ever heard of. I mean, the, there's so much conflicting testimony from different police who were there about who was in, who was not in the trailer, when they were in there, when they weren't in there. The, there is no telling who all came in and out of that trailer and when they did it and what evidence was moved around and when it wasn't. Uh, it was an absolute disaster. Of, of trying to secure that crime scene. There were photos of the scene presented at trial as evidence. And the fact that the scene was not secure is important. One of the photos was of an angle in the TV room showing the couch, a litter box filled with cat poop, and a box of papers strewn out everywhere. So if you look at this full litter box, that is really consistent with the woman who was murdered on a Friday. She was found in her scrubs on Sunday, last seen alive in her scrubs on Friday. So she was almost certainly murdered on Friday. And then you've got a couple days of two cats using the litter box, so it's full. Nobody's been in there to clean it. This photo was pretty clearly taken the night Linda's body was found before any investigation was done. And you can find it on our website. Now, going back to the state's theory that Nikki and Daniel killed her mom for the insurance money, remember, the police said they found a box of paperwork in Daniel's home when the first search warrant on March 14th was executed, allegedly proving that Nikki and Daniel wanted the money since they took the documents. When prosecutors try a case, they like to tell a story because it's easier for jurors to understand why someone committed a crime. And the story here was that Nikki and Daniel wanted the insurance money so bad that the night they murdered Linda, they took the insurance papers right away. But Daniel's mother, in all of her years trying to prove her son's innocence, went and looked at these crime scene photos. She even took a magnifying glass to the negatives looking for any evidence she could find. And she did find something. She found a negative of this exact spot in Linda's house, but no box of papers, no cat poop, and fingerprint dust on surfaces. This photo was clearly taken after the police started investigating the scene. And this is key. The day after Linda's body was found, March 11th, Nikki, Daniel, and family friends were allowed to go back into the crime scene to collect belongings and prepare for the funeral. In fact, lead detective Jim Whittington testified that they were allowed back in the trailer numerous times to collect belongings. That's when Nikki said one of her mom's friends who was helping her out handed her some documents. She said, well, I think these might be important. So I said, well, just stick them in the box and we'll look at them when we get down to uh, Daniel's house. And I didn't know what and I didn't know what it was. 
I didn't look at him or anything. So, yes, Nikki, with police permission, went back to her home and gathered important things. And naturally, days later, when the warrant was executed on Daniel's house, they found the box and insurance papers there. This whole thing was a huge deal during the trial. For days, different witnesses were asked about the insurance papers, including the officers on the scene, Jim Whittington, Robert Gorham, Terry Bolton, and Johnny Hayes. Whittington was even brought back as a witness and added that he doesn't recall seeing the box they found at Daniel's parents' house in Linda's house. The prosecution made it clear. The box and the insurance papers were gone because Nikki and Daniel had taken it the night of the murder because they wanted to collect the life insurance policy. And that's why that second photo Daniel's mom found is important. The second photo shows the police were aware that the box in the photos was missing only after the murder because the night Linda was discovered, it's there. And then days later when this photo was taken, it was not. And John thinks it's likely the prosecution came up with this motive when they realized Nikki and Daniel took the insurance papers and the box the next day. In the defense's closing statements, they point out that the insurance papers only became important after the police got to the Rusher home for the first search warrant and found them there. The defense says it's not even on the affidavit for a search warrant, so it's incredibly unlikely they initially searched Linda's house for the papers as they testified they did. In fact, Nikki was the one who brought up the papers in her formal police interview the day after the murder when Gorham asked, quote, what about stocks, bonds, anything like that? Nikki responded, quote, they said she had life insurance. I'm not for sure how much she has or where it is or anything. John, like the defense, thinks they crafted this whole theory after the fact when they were looking to pin the murder on someone. I do believe that they got locked in on this theory and made it work. These police were incompetent in, in how to manage a scene like this. I believe all of those things. And to be upfront, we don't know if this box in the photos is the box that was found at Daniel's. We don't have good evidence photos to establish it is the same. But there's also another box that could be one that they're talking about. The day after the murder, before her police interview, Nikki stopped by her mother's job to pick up Linda's belongings. She was handed a box by a co-worker and she says she never opened it. She just brought it right to Daniel's. It's also possible that this is the box with the insurance papers in it. It's possible the police didn't see any papers at the house as they claimed. And that also means that Nikki didn't either. And the papers were innocently given to her after the murder. Now, I know this isn't the most compelling evidence of innocence, but it certainly opens the door for reasonable doubt and shows that the investigation was sloppy at best, corrupted at worst. But the DNA evidence found on Daniel's coat is pretty close to a slam dunk. Craig Cooley from the Innocence Project had it tested and discovered that it was not human blood, as the prosecution suggested. But John is coming at the blood from another angle. He says the luminal evidence should not have been admitted in trial in the first place. At trial, Don Smith from the Arkansas State Crime Lab testified about the substance on Daniel's coat. What he did was spray luminol on the coat. 
Luminol is a chemical agent that reacts with an oxidizing agent like iron in blood. It will glow blue in the dark. What Luminol does not show is number one, that is even for sure blood, what it's illuminating. Number two, it does not show what even species the blood comes from. And it damn sure does not show whose blood it was if it was a human. Right, that's it's biological evidence. That's it, right. yes. So um, what largely convicted them was this testimony from Don Smith about luminol. At trial, it was strongly implied that the luminol reacted with human blood, and specifically Linda's. For a lay juror, this is convincing. Now, they were careful during their testimony to say, well, we can't say that for certain. You know, Don Smith said, well, we can't say that for certain. But luminol is not supposed to be brought up into a trial unless there's corroborating evidence. And so here they are talking so much about this luminol in front of the jury with the very, I mean, the only implication is that the victim's blood was found on Daniel's jacket and boots. So that was largely the evidence that was used to convict them. Now, we know because of Craig's test that the blood was, in fact, not human at all. This is just what Daniel was saying all along. This, this is my hunting jacket. Had to be deer blood. Um, he was a hunter. He was a hunter. Yeah, this is southwest Arkansas. Um, and uh, so we can say with 100% scientific certainty that the blood on Daniel's articles of clothing was not even human blood, much less the victim's. A year after trial, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled that luminol can't be brought up in trial unless there's corroborating evidence, meaning it's not enough that you have luminol showing there's blood on something, that one test on its own can't make somebody look guilty when in fact the test doesn't show that the blood found has anything to do with the case or even if it's human. And so John's argument now is that the jury never even should have heard this evidence because according to the law, there was no further corroborative testing. And side note, the Supreme Court case that prompted this law also involved criminalist Don Smith. A few years ago, Nikki and Daniel applied for clemency. They got a unanimous recommendation from the Board of Pardons. This is super rare the Board of Pardons was ready to let them out. However, the Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson, denied the request. For almost 30 years, Nikki and Daniel have been in prison. Now at 57, besides occasionally tutoring, Nikki works in the laundry room, folding and washing clothes. And she has a lot of time to think, particularly about her dad. When you have nothing really to do but to watch TV, I'm a thinker. I overthink, and I always wonder. I don't understand. I've never understood because of all the years in prison, I've seen many fathers not care about their children, and I don't understand how can a, a father not love their child. You know that you don't even know that child, and I don't. You know, I've, I've struggled with that for a long, long time. When Nikki was living with her mom, she didn't know much about where her dad had gone. Right before trial, Nikki found out her dad was actually living close by all along, and she never knew it. They met once, and she says that was it. In 96, when I was at Tucker, he, uh, he died in the house fire. He fell asleep smoking a cigarette when he was uh, drunk, and he, over 80% of his body got burned up. So, I mean, I met him once, and then all this happened, and then when I went to prison, I didn't have any contact with him. 
So, and then when the chaplain come told me that he was dead, it it was different. I mean, it hurt my feelings, but it didn't hurt like it should hurt, I think. I mean, how can you miss something that you never had? Nikki says even though she doesn't have family or many friends, she says she's seen fondly by other prisoners who confide in her. Like I told you in the letters, some people call me mom, some people call me grandma, because I listen to all these heartbreaking stories, and some I can relate and some I can't. But, I mean, just to listen to all these all these people and this hurt, you know what I'm saying? I don't understand that. I, I just, you know, even though I come from hurt sometimes. Have you met other women inside who you also believe are innocent? In a sense, yeah, because, you know, you have so many people in here on domestic violence that got got caught up in that web mm. with, with that guy, and they had they thought they had no way out because they wouldn't let them out, and they were, they were put in a corner, and a lot of times when you're put in a corner, uh, the first thing you do is, is a natural reaction that, Either you hurt me or hurt my children, or I have to hurt you. And these women have to suffer. These women have to learn how to do this the hard way because there's nobody in here that helps any people. No one helped me when I first came to prison. They were mean to me. They were hateful. But Nikki says things are looking up for her now that John and Proclaim Justice have picked up her case. Like a little kid, I feel like sometimes like a little kid in the candy stores, you know? I mean, it's not necessarily there for me to grab, but it's... I'm just walking in the door, and I'm going to grab that one day, you know? My, my, a lot of my dark days are gone. Right now, John and his investigators are not only working on getting her and Daniel's case back in front of the court based on the luminol testimony, but they're also following new leads. A similar murder occurred around the same time as Linda Holly's. 73-year-old Bernice Rankin was murdered four days later, 30 miles away in Cullen, Louisiana. All we know is that that the facts are the same as they stand. Uh, Stage burglary, woman living at home by herself, brutally killed. And um, we don't know. um, We know some suspects in that case. We we don't have a direct tie at this point, um, but... It's another one of those things that we're still, this investigation's ongoing, and that may bear some fruit. And one of the biggest challenges to this is that not only is this a different city, but it's a different state, and that's possibly why a connection was never considered almost 30 years ago. But there is preserved DNA that John says when they are able to solidify this lead more, it can be compared to that at the other crime scene. And that's not the only path investigators didn't explore. In fact, there are so many paths that it's almost overwhelming. There was a nonprofit organization called Abilities Unlimited that was near Linda's trailer. The organization helped people with varying degrees of disabilities or people who have just come out of prison get on their feet. The police had a list of people from Abilities Unlimited with criminal records that they never looked into. It could be that there was somebody that just kind of walked through there, but there were people seen around there, multiple people, that were never investigated at all. Like a man acting suspicious standing by Linda's trailer, a neighbor saw between 5 and 6 o'clock, the exact time frame for the murder. And then 
there's also one of Linda's friends, Jen Terrell. You might remember her as one of Linda's friends who was the first on the scene. She was also Linda's best friend and the second beneficiary of Linda's life insurance policy after Nikki. At trial, Jan testified that Nikki had called about a month before the murder asking about the life insurance and if Linda changed the beneficiary. This felt like a betrayal to Nikki. You know, she told me my whole life, you know what I'm saying? And and she done me, and it hurt my feelings, and I felt, you know, like, like you just threw me out or, or threw me away. I don't know. I just felt very sad, very alone. Also, Jan testified that she wanted nothing to do with the money and that she would not take it. In their closing arguments, the defense attorneys bet their beachfront home in Tucson she would take it. Of course, she did go to court with Nikki years later and wound up taking the money. It's unclear what she did with it. And in my opinion, there's another detail that points to the killer being someone close to Linda. Because of Linda's cancer treatments, she was bald and she wore a wig. And if her wig was off, she generally wouldn't answer the door. She didn't want to be seen without it. So when Linda was found, she wasn't wearing her wig, implying that, yes, this could have been a break-in, or that this was someone close to her, someone she was comfortable letting in her home without her wig, like a friend. But Linda's friends weren't investigated, like this one particular friend, though if they had investigated it, it would have been messy. There's strong indication that the victim, Miss Holly, was, was having a relationship with a married police officer um, in the Magnolia Police Department, and um, a police car was seen there with frequency. Nikki says she knows who it was. Jim Whittington used to uh, get our house a lot late, late at night. Jim Whittington, the lead investigator, testified at trial that he and Linda were indeed friends and he knew her personally. And I would come, I would come home and uh, his car would, would be in the yard, an unmarked white police car. He, um, he was at our house quite a bit. Nikki says Whittington was the first person to question her at the scene the day her mother was found murdered. And he testified to going back to the scene days later to photograph after it had been tampered with. Remember those photos with the missing box? Nikki says with John on her side, she knows she's going to get out one day. I can't tell you when I'll get out, but I've never thought this was my home. And home is where your heart's at. I've always thought this was a house because we have to be here, you know? But I've never, never thought that I was ever going to be here, you know, for the rest of my life. She says when she's out, she wants to start new and not in Arkansas. I think if I had someplace to start over new, fresh, not from where I'm from, it doesn't fix your problems because your problems go everywhere, you know? I can't Mm -hmm. run from my problems. But what I can do is find peace with myself and try to start anew and see who the new Nikki is. Because I'm definitely not the old one. Who do you think you would be? More resilient. I'm a little tougher. I'm not a cow leather, but I'm tougher than I was because of what, you know, I've had to go through. 
Nikki says one of the first things she wants to do is maybe get a job other than the laundromat prison. She's never had a job, but mostly, maybe, after all these years, have a family of her own. I have always wanted children, and being uh, locked up for uh, going on uh, almost 29 years, I would hope that maybe I could adopt because I've learned it's not necessarily you giving birth. It's the simple fact is you're giving your love to something or something, not necessarily a thing as an object, but boy or girl, that nobody else wants to show them. You know what I'm saying? Nikki would love to hear from you. She doesn't have close family or many pen pals. In fact, she told me, it's just John and me. If her story touched you, please reach out to her. I recently rented Nikki a tablet from the prison to make her time a little less harsh. She can now listen to music and find educational resources. And if you want to help me pay for Nikki's tablet, you can financially support this and the rest of the work I do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash unjust and unsolved. If you want to help Nikki, please go to proclaimjustice.org where you can find ways to help support their investigative and legal team. You can also find resources to write her and show her support on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. Nikki would love to hear from you. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining our Patreon. It shows us how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonuses. Also, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at unjustunsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessnetwork.com. 